This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Could a brain injury lead someone to commit a crime? That's something Colorado researchers want to answer, and they're spending time in jails to find out. It's the focus of beta tests today about cutting-edge research in Colorado. Kim Gorgans leads this research. She's associate professor of psychology at the University of Denver and a brain injury expert. What started out as a small pilot program in Denver's jail has expanded to other correctional facilities across the state. And Kim, welcome to the program. Ryan, thanks for having me. So your early research at the Denver jail shows inmates are more likely to have suffered brain injuries head trauma, I suppose, uh, more likely than the general population. How much more likely? It's a great question. And the numbers are striking. In our initial pilot data, those numbers were 97 percent. So the rate of traumatic brain injury history in the Denver County Jail in their mental health transition unit was 97 percent. The vast majority then of inmates there had suffered some kind of head trauma or brain injury. A significant brain injury history. Exactly. And that in the general population should be somewhere between six and eight percent. As we've expanded into other sites, that number has leveled off at somewhere between 55 percent at some sites and 80 percent on the high end. All right. And are you always looking at a population that is getting mental health services or is this inmates in general when you talk about like the 55 percent? That is a great question because the initial data, the 97 percent data, those data were collected on the mental health transition unit. So that was a specialized population unit of folks who would otherwise not stay afloat in the general population. So either they had acute psychiatric conditions or were risk for self-harm. So they were arguably more vulnerable or fragile than general corrections. Now that we've expanded to 17 other sites, it's just general population. So those numbers are between 55 and 80 percent. My. And are we talking about injuries that happened before they were incarcerated or perhaps during incarceration? It's a really interesting point. So most of the injuries we're talking about occurred before they were incarcerated. So in fact, most of the injuries predate criminal behavior, which is a kind of interesting sidebar and a different conversation we could have at some point. Uh, What is also true, though, is that these folks are vulnerable to assault while they're incarcerated. So their risk for being victimized while they're in custody is higher. By other inmates. By other inmates. Most likely or potentially guards if if the environment is not a healthy one? Uh, in, in an extreme situation, I can imagine a circumstance where uh, a law enforcement personnel or correctional officer is protecting themselves in a situation where they feel like someone is behaving combative or more aggressively. So uh, you could see, you could imagine where someone might sustain an injury in that circumstance too. Okay. But what you're saying is that the majority of the self-reported exactly. head trauma happened before incarceration predates. and predates, you say, that the criminal activity. Right. And that naturally leads to the question of whether there is a connection then between uh, the head trauma and the behavior. I know that that's not an answer you have here today, but what can we say about how head trauma affects behavior in general? What does the research tell us? So the research tells us a lot of things about uh, risk for uh, behavioral impulsivity or aggressiveness, uh, emotional lability, or a difficulty managing your emotions. So those are some fairly common after effects, after injury. 
What we also know is that for people who don't have access to supportive resources, and that might be educated care providers who know how to manage those problems, it can also be uh, rehabilitation programming and long-term rehabilitation programming, that in the absence of those resources, the problems get worse instead of better. That is to say, if they don't have medical care, if they don't have a doctor, for instance, those um, effects of head trauma, as you say, uh, the potential for aggression. Right. Sure. Okay. Aggressive behavior. Uh, the inability to manage one's behavior that can get out of control. I exactly. And the complicating factor is also substance abuse and mental illness, which is kind of all tied together in a kind of cyclical rotation where risk of having substance abuse and psychiatric illness is almost 100 percent in terms of comorbidity with a traumatic brain injury history. So Co- comorbidity means it comes along with. Yes, Selena. exactly. Okay. Um, why do you want to do this work? What 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 are the questions you want to answer? Uh, this work is so important, largely because we're talking about the most vulnerable community members, right? We're talking about people who, uh, we're not talking about serial murderers here, right? We're talking about people who get picked up repeatedly for trespassing or loitering, and they're blowing through the terms of conditional release, for example. And these folks have... Uh, significant history of suicide attempts, a significant psychiatric or mental illness history, significant substance dependence problems, significant brain injury history, and the system isn't responsive to them. And what we do know is that they use disproportionately more resources while they're incarcerated. So things like health services, for example, and the risk for recidivism or reoffense is much higher, so because they end up are, rearrested. Right. These are largely people in jails, which means that they will return That's to right. the streets. It's, That's it's right. that simple. That's right. That's right. And the risk for recidivism is between 80 and 90 percent. Okay. So you're looking at all kinds of things, the cost to society, the cost to these individuals, right? whether more crimes are committed. And this is self-reported. Can you can you trust the data? It's such a great question, and we've uh, really wrestled with this. So, uh, in the field of brain injury, there is so little in the way of gold standard identification of traumatic brain injury. So, with the exception of someone presenting themselves at an emergency room at the time of injury, where their mental status could be tracked real time by a medical professional. Most people don't have that luxury, and most people who even had received medical care at the time won't have access to those records decades later. So it sounds like the field in general, not just when you're looking at jails, relies on self-report. Relies entirely on self-report history. So we try to do that really carefully to elicit as truthful and thoughtful a report as possible. All right. Can you can you perhaps relay a story of an inmate that you've interviewed? Yeah. So uh, what I like to talk about are some of the female inmates. So this research is interesting because we're looking at men and women, and we have about an equal percentage of both in our database. Uh, The story from the women in particular are stunning in terms of the rates of interpersonal violence and women who were beaten into unconsciousness on a regular basis at every occasion that they ran into a significant other or romantic partner. Uh, in the kind of expected, sad, but expected difficulties that they've encountered, right? They're unable to keep a job. They're unable to attend to uh, the activities of daily living, like childcare, in any meaningful way. So 
the options available to these women in particular shrink radically, right? And these women end up, right, picked up for petty crimes around drug possession. Uh, One woman in particular was picked up for uh, stealing what she called a bait car or a car that Denver police would leave out for the purposes of uh, inviting theft so that they might arrest car thieves. So she picked up that car to get money for drugs. I didn't know there were bait cars. Bait cars. That's a thing. So uh, you hear the stories and without exception, they're all tremendously sad. And you can see a trajectory from the time of injury where no care or no resources were provided. And in these women's cases, a lot of them have no attention whatsoever from kind of external systems like judicial, police, healthcare. So uh, you know, it's a wonder that their outcomes aren't worse. So domestic violence can be a source for the head trauma. And what else? I mean, maybe childhood abuse. Did you hear that perhaps? So uh, certainly childhood abuse. What we see statistically is that in our justice involved population, that the rate of assault as a mechanism of injury is much higher than it is in the general population. So that's the most common mechanism of injury in our group, and that's about 40 percent. The general population, that number is closer to 10 percent. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Kim Gorgans from the University of Denver. She's an associate professor of psychology there about the potential connections between head trauma and criminality and also how jails, if they are at all, address uh, brain injury in inmates. And I do want to sort of signal a note of caution here. You're not saying that the woman who stole that bait car did so because she had a head trauma purely. Right. There are obviously there are a lot of factors that play into that Absolutely. decision. And Absolutely. any number of people with head trauma are not going to steal a car. Exactly. And that's such an important point. And moreover, there's nothing about our study that is attempting to uh you know, impact the justice system in their handling of the criminal offense. Instead, what we're really trying to do is make the systems more responsive to the needs, the individual needs of the person with the brain injury. In the jails or before they get there? Well, we have both in our population now. So we have correction sites, we have jail sites, and we're at the problem-solving court side. So we're trying to move as far upstream as possible in the system. And what would that look like in the jails? What could change, do you think, to address the head trauma? Right. And thus, as you say, potentially bring down costs, potentially lower the recidivism rate. Right. So important. So nothing about what we're doing is treating the brain injury. We're still treating the presenting problem. So for some of these individuals, it's anger management or substance abuse relapse prevention or psychotherapy. What we're doing is tailoring those interventions to the deficits, the cognitive deficits that those inmates might have. Okay, what might that look like? I don't know, in the Denver jail. Yeah, so for example, if someone, if we identified someone as having a significant attention impairment, for example, then we know that they're not going to follow along in a group setting that is delivered, uh, where all of the content is delivered verbally 
in a busy environment, for example. So we might suggest to that mental health therapist that they use handouts with that person or that they minimize environmental distractions and they deliver individual psychotherapy with that person. Okay. Could this affect how a guard interacted potentially with someone? You bet. So one of the aims of our project is that we're rolling out educational programming for both the individuals with the brain injury history, but also for correctional personnel. You've done this actually with hundreds, I think, in the Denver Sheriff's Department. Right, right. And it's been really successful. So for the most part, uh, correctional personnel are frustrated by a lot of these inmates because they appear volitionally to not pay attention, to disregard instructions, to be non-rule abiding. So to give the correctional personnel some tools they might use, right, repeating directions, slower chunked directions. So, you know, a few directions at a time in a slow progression gives them some mastery over the frustration they feel with them. Once again, this is a theme that has come up on the program before. Are we asking guards to do more than they should? Are we asking guards to be mental health professionals? Like It's like one more thing for them to track. In addition to the already difficult job of just keeping the place safe. Right. Uh, I would say no. And instead, this is a tool to help them unshoulder some of the frustration of their day-to-day jobs. So a lot of these inmates in particular, some of them, a smaller number of them, pose an actual physical risk. So understanding how to de-escalate someone who has a brain injury history or who is impulsive related to that is really important, but also giving them tools to manage the day-to-day activities of those inmates, right? So to help them get safely from their cell to the cafeteria, out into the yard, right? That actually makes their jobs easier. Finally, do you think this research could benefit those outside of jail? Uh, I don't know, athletes who have suffered uh, head trauma or just anyone in the general population who has a head trauma? I think to the degree that we're having this conversation and breaking some part of the stigma of brain injury really speaks to the entire population at large. And that's from NFL and professional athletes to women in domestic violence, men and women in domestic violence or interpersonally violent situations to kids in sports. Right. This is a conversation we should be having about how high the stakes are after injury. And how widespread, certainly among some populations. Thanks for being with us. Ryan, thanks so much. Kim Gorgans is a clinical associate professor in the Graduate School of Professional Psychology at the University of Denver. She is studying inmates who've suffered traumatic brain injury. Tomorrow, a look at TBI as it relates to extreme athletes. Coming up today, the Pro Challenge cycling race died this year. Might another event take its place? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You'd think an international bike race that drew as many as a million spectators would have made money. But that's not how it turned out for Colorado's USA Pro Challenge. It folded earlier this year. Well, now a group of big-name investors with deep pockets wants to try a new kind of race. For more on this, I'm joined by Fred Dreyer. He's editor of Velo News in Boulder, which covers cycling. He's on the phone. And Fred, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. Sure. There's a graveyard of failed cycling races now in Colorado. I think of not just the Pro Challenge, but the Coors Classic. When you heard this news that something else might take the Pro Challenge's place, did you meet it with an eye roll? 
Well, we should back up. I mean, there's a graveyard of bicycle races across the United States, not just in Colorado. So you look at the, yes, the USA Pro Challenge is the, is the newest one to be buried, but there's also the Tour of Missouri, the Tour to Georgia, the Coors Classic. Um, bicycle races don't make money, these big world-class road races. And so when I heard that uh, some promoters were uh, planning a new race in Colorado and Virginia, I didn't necessarily roll my eyes, but I just assumed that, you know, they know what they're getting into, and what they're getting into is uh, a money-losing situation. Right. It's like when someone tries to open a restaurant or get into the airline business, you're thinking, good luck with that. Uh, the Pro Challenge was seven days long, traveled across more than 500 miles, visited towns across the state, of course. Some of the best cyclists in the world came, and uh, as we mentioned, it drew about a million fans a year. What would this new race look like? And as you say, it's sort of a pair of races, not just uh, in Colorado. So it's still very much the planning phase for this new race. It hasn't been given the green light by the UCI, which is the uh, sports governing body. But what the promoters have been talking about is doing something called a hub-and-spoke model, which you have a city that basically hosts the start for all of the stages. You know, the USA Pro Challenge very much, it, it visited all sorts of different parts of the states right. of the state. It went from, um, you know, places like Boulder to Denver, Breckenridge, Aspen, whereas this model, you would have one city hosting the start line and the stage is finishing around it. So, you know, you're concentrating spectators in one area and you're concentrating your overhead costs a little bit more. So in theory, it would be a bit cheaper to organize. I see. And the idea is that they would have a second race somewhere else. Uh, Virginia, is that right? Yeah, there's a second race that's going to be owned by the same group uh, in Virginia. The group is called RPM Management. And um, two, last year, Virginia, the city of Richmond, hosted the UCI World Championships. It was the first time that race was held in American soil in about 30 years. And I think they're trying to capitalize on the success of that race to uh, to have a big race. Uh, you know, they saw that a lot of fans came out. There was a lot of interest. So I think the calculus there is, well, maybe we can put on another big four-day race now that people are all jazzed up about bicycle racing. Introduce us to the characters here. Who, who are the investors and uh, how deep are the pockets? So any big bicycle race that you put on, you have to have ownership group that's willing to take some losses. You know, we saw that with the USA Pro Challenge. You had the Schaden family who was there to uh, backstop the event. You know, the Tour of California has the has the Phil Anschutz and AEG uh, to cover the losses. So this group called RPM Events Group has... Um, uh, a gentleman by the name of David Koff, who's a Denver businessman. It has uh, the Gart family of uh, Gart Brothers fame. And then the wild card that I didn't see coming was uh, Ben Walton, who's one of the grandchildren of uh, Walmart founder Sam Walton. Mm -hmm. I know he's an Aspen resident, but it sounds like he's come on board to help back the race. Isn't Ken Gart's also the bike czar for uh, Hickenlooper, right? Yeah, and Ken Gart has been involved with um, the bike race for a while. You know, he was brought in, I believe, last year to help consult with the USA Pro Challenge after its ownership parted ways with the race. So he has been interested in, in bikes and the bike race for a while. So it makes some sense that he would be uh, heading up this group. 
You said that they have to be prepared to lose money. I, I guess you mean yep. in the early years of a race. Why the heck would investors get involved? Is it because they just love cycling so much? Yeah, I mean, it's not just in the early early years. I mean, the Amgen Tour California has been going on 10 years. And from what I know, that race is still losing money. You know, the reason why people get involved in bicycle races is because, A, they have a passion for the sport, but, B, they want something to give to the state. You know, a bicycle race, if you think about it, is like a big parade that goes around the state. Um, It gets people out to watch. It showcases the state on television to people around the world. It is kind of a way to give back. But giving back means losing money. So, um, you know, these guys, I believe they have a passion for cycling, but it also could be that they want to give something back to the state. Okay, so how likely is this new race to happen, and do you have any sense of the time frame? You know, when the um, first announcements and first buzz around this race came out about a month ago, I didn't give it too much I didn't have too much confidence in it. But now that they have this ownership group intact and the ownership includes people with relatively deep pockets, I'm a lot more confident. You know, what has to happen next is the UCI, the sports governing body, has to okay it and give it a spot on the calendar. And once that happens, the race can go forward with selling sponsorships, with attracting teams, and doing sort of the blocking and tackling with getting it rolling. So if all goes according to plan and the UCI gives it the green light, I mean, there's a, there is a good chance we could see it on the calendar for 2017. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't think it would be that soon. Uh, You talked about the hub-and-spoke model of this new race, which Mm -hmm. is to say it's not going to be wending its way all throughout the state as as the Pro Challenge did. Is that a loss potentially for the the towns that were along the Pro Challenge and that wouldn't necessarily be a part of the hub-and-spoke? Yeah, it could be. And it also could be a financial uh, detriment to the race. You know, one of the ways that these races do generate income is charging a fee to the towns who want to host a start or a finish. But on top of that, then you have to, you know, you have to pay extra to close down the roads in between those uh, towns. And depending on the county and depending on the relationships with some of those communities, those costs can be soaring. So, yeah, you know, this could be uh, a loss for towns like Aspen or um, Durango, you know, towns that are that are farther away from Denver, assuming that Denver is going to be the hub of this hub, hub and spoke model. Um, so, yeah, you know, it won't show off the state the way that the USA Pro Challenge did. But the calculus, again, is that, eh, you know, maybe you lose the ability to showcase the state and showcase some of those towns, but you cut down the overhead costs so you make your race a little bit more sustainable. Fred, very quickly before we go, will there be interest among cyclists in participating? That's a key question, isn't it? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, the the racing leagues here in the States is very much the minor leagues of uh, bicycle racing with Europe having the, the major leagues. Uh, but the teams that race in the States are always interested in new races of this caliber that are popping up. Um, races come and go on their calendar. And in the last few years, we've seen a number of races go. I mean, most recently with the USA Pro Challenge, but uh, the Tour of California is reported to be stepping into the World Tour next year, which could make it off limits for some of the domestic racing teams in the States. So anytime you're planning a new race, they're definitely going to be interested. If you build it, they'll come. It sounds like there's hunger. Thanks so much for being with us.
Yeah, thanks, Fred. Fred Dreyer, editor of Velo News, based in Boulder. And for transparency's sake, we should say that Dreyer took some time off from Velo News last year to do some freelance work for the now-defunct ProChallenge. At the Paralympics, which wrapped up this weekend, a Colorado swimmer stood out for her performance and for a poolside interview. Sophia Herzog of Fair Play took silver in the 100-meter breaststroke. We talked with her before the Games about her hopes. Definitely coming home with a medal is the ultimate goal, but just soaking up every moment and enjoying all the teammates and the culture down there. Do you hear that? She's so calm, cool, collected. Well, after her silver medal win, she fought back the tears in this interview with NBC. Sophia, is it as good as you thought it would be? It's so much better. I can't believe I did it. I've worked so hard for this for two years. I moved to the training center in Colorado Springs. And this is what we live and eat and breathe to do. We train nine times a week. And it's so good that it finally paid off. Once you jumped into the pool, at what point did you think this is going to be a special night? Um, I knew this morning that I was in really good contention for a medal. So I went back and I tried to take a nap, but I was too excited. I just laid in bed and talked to my roommate about it. Because she's won 11 medals, Courtney Jordan. So she told me how exciting it's going to be and it's lived up to it. Enjoy every second. Congratulations. You can hear our full interview with swimmer Sophia Herzog of Fair Play at CPRnews.org. And we'll be right back with a taste of what's billed as the largest free literature festival in the world, and it's in Boulder. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado novelists Sarah Elizabeth Schantz and Erica Krauss have something in common. Their protagonists don't fit in. It may have something to do with their characters' mental instability. These two writers will discuss this at the Jaipur Literature Festival this weekend in Boulder. It is billed as the world's largest free lit fest. Krauss and Schantz's session is called The Outsiders, and a welcome to you both. Thanks Thanks for having us. So social alienation is a theme that shows up in a lot of your writing, Erica, Mm -hmm. both in your short stories and your debut novel, Contenders. I'd like to have you read an excerpt from that book. Your protagonist, Nina Black, is a street fighter who steals people's wallets. That's right. Okay, here we go. Nina was a thief, technically, although she never defined herself that way. Apart from being negative sounding, it was relative. The way Nina saw it, if you stole a wallet, people called you a thief. If you stole an election, they called you president. Nina instead thought of herself as a kind of pool shark, except she didn't play pool. It wasn't her fault that they underestimated her. Men shouldn't be hitting women anyway. I mean, really, what kind of world was this? She was an enforcement officer, collecting small fines from men who violated the social contract. Every animal steals to live. Nina liked to pay her rent on time. She liked to be fiscally responsible. So she is something of an opportunist, but she, she sees herself as, as predator to prey. You've right. called her a sociopath. <laughs> what interests you about that kind of socially detached character 
versus someone that might draw more empathy from readers, you know, and mm-hmm. who's generally more likable, maybe. Right. I think a lot of readers are themselves outsiders and underdogs. I, I think re- the reading culture isn't necessarily encouraged from a young age. It's more about sports and, you know, be really good at soccer and football, et cetera. So if you're a reader, I think you're already a little bit on the outskirts. So you might you know, get feel more empathy toward a character who's way on the outskirts and makes you feel like you're you're less so. Can can the same be said of writers? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're nodding your head. Absolutely. Okay. Do you consider her mentally ill? That's a, a excellent question. And and Sarah and I were talking about the different kinds of mental illness. Like there's schizophrenia, which is chemical, and then there are the personality disorders, like um, sociopathy and narcissism, and and the things that you know people that might be said that it's at will that it benefits them to be a sociopath because they get exactly what they want and they get to you know act the way they want regardless of the rules of society. So I think she's a budding mentally ill sociopath. And so, did you spend a lot of time crafting that accurately? Do you feel some <laughs> duty to portray what is potentially mental illness in an honest way, in an accurate way? Yeah. And I i mean, I hope I don't know that much about that, <laughs> although some people might argue. Um, but it, I, I think I focused more on her. And, and I think what pushed her into this kind of sociopathic um, – behavior is the fact that she is such an outsider. Um, she's a fighter, but she, women are not encouraged to be fighters. So if you're really good at something that no one wants you to be good at, what does that do to your head? And what is <sighs> what kind of value system does that create for you? That The idea that she might be forced into her mental state because she's an outsider and because right. she's receiving so many messages of, of sort of non-support. Right. And, and non-tolerance even. Sarah, your book, Fig, is a young adult novel that deals with some heavy topics. It's through the eyes of Fiona Johnson, known to her family as Fig. And starting at age six, she journals about wanting to save her mother from schizophrenia. But in protecting her mom, Fig starts to unravel mentally herself. What interests you about writing characters struggling, I guess in this case, with mental illness? I think that mostly I heard a character, two characters, really, both Fig and her mother. And the mental illness came later just as an explanation for how they both felt outside of where they are. But the schizophrenia and the OCD and the magical thinking is just another layer to that, perhaps aggravated by their particular situation in rural Kansas. Yeah. And when you took on the topic, did you feel some sort of duty about how to portray it, schizophrenia in particular? Absolutely. I definitely, I didn't want to come to the book with the agenda. I'm writing a book about mental illness. But at the same time, with schizophrenia in particular, I wanted to make sure that I got it right. I did a lot of research, about four years worth of research. As far as the OCD goes, um, I didn't need to do as much research. I have my own OCD tendencies that I have a pretty good handle on. Um, As far as the dermatillomania that Fig suffers, that was something that I did a lot of research around, but I also made it... Explain that term for us. 
So dermatillomania is the obsessive-compulsive picking at one's skin. It's similar to cutting, except for that it's not always categorized as self-harm, even though it can have that self-harm component, obviously. And and tell me again, for the research on that, what did you draw from? There is a, uh, a memoir that somebody wrote about it that I read by Angela Hartland, And then I looked at DSMs and I went to a website called SkinPick and sort of floated around the forums. DSM, a Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is sort of an encyclopedia or a a diagnosis tool in, in the mental health field. May I ask how OCD has manifested for you? Personally? Yeah, and I can imagine that it it might be especially tough for a writer who has to be regimented perhaps in how you write, when you write, those kinds of things? In that regard, it helps. I think <laughs> that it gives me uh, – I hear a lot of people talk about writer's block. I don't necessarily have that problem. And how does that relate to the OCD? Um, I just – I'm obsessed with the idea of writing, I suppose. It's more, it's trickier for me to get to my teaching job, perhaps, than it is to get to the computer to start writing. Mm. And how has OCD presented a, a problem for you then? I suppose I'm chronically early. And I know people don't necessarily think of that as a bad thing, but I was actually in a car accident because of it. Not because of it. Obviously, I was hit by another car, but I was running incredibly early to an appointment and I had been killing time, which is something that I don't do anymore. Now I fill time. And had I not been so early, who knows, maybe I wouldn't have been struck by that oncoming car. There's things like list making that will take over. My handwriting is another aspect. Um, It's interesting that that thought that if you hadn't been early, maybe you wouldn't have been in the accident strikes me as the kind of magical thinking that you say one of your characters does. Absolutely. Which, you know, in the DSM, they have magical thinking as a disorder, which really threw me. And so it's a disorder for anybody over the age of six if they have the tendency unless it's associated with religion. So praying God, that type of magical (laughs) thinking isn't considered a disorder. Nor would some people call it magical thinking, I suppose. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And the Jaipur Literature Festival is going on this weekend in Boulder. It's a free festival. It's one of the largest in the world. And we're getting something of a taste from two authors, Colorado novelists, who will take part, Sarah Elizabeth Schantz and Erica Krauss, will contribute to a panel called The Outsiders, and it's an exploration of what it means to be an outsider and to struggle as well with mental instability. I understand um, that, Erica, your own feelings of being marginalized influence your writing. Mm-hmm. And what did, what did the marginalization look like for you? What did it look for? Oh, well, part of it has to do with the topic of the book. I I was a pretty bad martial artist for a very large period of my life. And uh, so, you know, when you walk into a dojo or a, a school, uh, you get one of two reactions. One, they'll try and get rid of you as quickly as possible by ignoring you or by hurting you. So you were as sidelined as your main character in some regards. Yeah, well, she's way better than me and I never <laughs> stole wallets or 
people up in the street. But um, although it might have been interesting if I had been good enough to do that. But I and then I started thinking, well, what if I had been and it, it turned out like the better I was, the more hurt I got. And I thought, well, what if I was really good? Huh. What would happen to me? if I were, and and what were the dramatic possibilities for that? It's one thing to be sidelined. It's another thing to face more violence because people resent your presence as a woman in martial arts. But that was a reality you dealt with. Right, and I I find that actually violence is an interesting subject with regard to the outsider because uh, predators are outsiders and also victims are shunted to the outside as well. So in in that balance between predator and victim, uh, there's a lot of potential for exploring the fringes of life instead of the inside. Sarah, is it possible that we're all outsiders? No one's actually on the inside? I think absolutely. I mean, there's always us and them, and that's something that challenges humankind since the very beginning. I keep thinking about this idea of the predator, though. I did my critical thesis on the evolution of Little Red Riding Hood from prey to predator. Um, And, you know, originally she actually does kill the werewolf that's after her in the oral folktale, but then over time she becomes the victim or she gets saved by a male. But then in Hard Candy with Ellen Page, she becomes the predator of the predator. Mm-hmm. And, and a feminist reaction. Uh, very heady. But I think the point is that predator and prey are sometimes interchangeable. We, we can be both. Right. Most bu- bullies were initially bullied. Yeah. So I think I think the, the switch happens in an instant. Mm-hmm. Why don't we hear some of your writing, Sarah? So um, this is an excerpt from Fig. And I think it's I think it's about some of the OCD tendencies. Yeah, it's specifically a dermatillomania moment. Before I go to bed, I go into the bathroom and lock the door. There is a scab on my elbow from when I fell in PE and scraped it on the asphalt. I haven't picked since I came home from the hospital with cellulitis, but I can't breathe. I must pick again. I wash my hands with scalding hot water and oatmeal soap. I rinse and then I check my nails for dirt and find I have to wash again. My fingers turn red from the heat and they are slippery and white with the second lathering of sweet soap. Once my hands are spotless, I sit on the floor. This time I notice something different. It's not just about the wound. I become two different girls. There's the girl with the sore on her elbow, and there's the girl with the sharp, clean fingernail. This time, I focus on being the second girl. You heard there Sarah Elizabeth Schantz of Boulder and author Erica Krauss. They'll take part in this weekend's Jaipur Literature Festival in Boulder, and they'll discuss writing about mental illness and social alienation. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A hundred years ago this month, Emily Griffith started a school in hopes of giving students a chance at a better life. Today, Emily Griffith Technical College in Denver offers training in everything from computers to bricklaying. To mark the school's centennial, let's listen back to a story from last spring. It's about refugees who learn English at Emily Griffith and about a survey of how they fare in Colorado. Here is CPR's Nathan Heffel. For many of the refugees that come to Colorado, their journey begins here in a classroom. 
This is a beginner's English course at the Emily Griffith Technical College in Denver. Refugees are trying to name the images placed in front of them by a volunteer, like grapes. Leela Timsona started in the same course when he came to Colorado from Bhutan nearly six years ago. We were evicted from Bhutan because of the ethnicity cleansing. We were not allowed to read our own language. We are forced to eat beef and pork and all those meats because we don't eat. And we are forced to leave the country. And he credits Emily Griffith for starting him off on the right track. This is real opportunity for refugee and immigrants. So I started my life, to be honest, you know, with you all. I started my life of English language from this school. So I always, you know, give back to this school. And when I have time, I come and visit. He's come a long way since then, too. He's active now in his community, serving on several city and neighborhood committees and organizations in Aurora. I was fully involved there. In each and every decision, they call me and they ask me, Lila, it's good for the immigrant and refugee communities. Then I approve that and okay, then they go forward. And I feel like I'm very proud to be here and also I'm involved, I'm respected and my word is hard now. Colorado's Refugee Services Program hopes for outcomes like Leela's, but it's been difficult to know how well refugees integrate into their communities across the state until now. A recently released study by the program tracked refugees for five years. Kit Tainter is the state refugee coordinator and joins us now, along with Ganga Upreti, another refugee from Bhutan. Welcome to the both of you. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. So, Kit, how important are these classes at Emily Griffith to incoming refugees? They're, they're very important. Um, it, As Leela said, it starts people off on the right track. Um, it's one of the first places that refugees interact with our school systems and with our educational systems and prepare themselves for work, um, as well as how to interact with their neighbors, um, the different systems that we have here in Denver. So, so based on your study, how well do refugees integrate into Colorado communities? Very well. Our study shows that refugees do have challenges when they first get here. Those challenges can include barriers in language and cultural knowledge or the ability to find employment. But over time, we find that they do find the, uh, the ability to learn more English um, and to integrate and into the workforce and to other areas of our community. Ganga, you, you came from Bhutan in the- early 2009. Uh, what were those first few months like? Uh, it was really uh, difficult when I first landed at Denver International Airport. But when I saw one of my friends already there to pick me up, I felt so glad that I already had someone there to help me out. And I also found my case manager from my resettlement agency. That made me excited. It was in the middle of the night. So a few months then after were a bit challenging. But as I started my schooling here in this country from Emily Griffith Opportunity School during that time, but now it's called Emily Griffith Technical College, that has helped me a lot to move forward in my life. And, and Kit, what if someone doesn't have the support like, like he had when he landed uh, you know, here in Colorado? Well, all refugees are met at the airport um, from a case manager, um, but sometimes people aren't quite as lucky as Ganga and having friends that are already here. So we try to find places where they can build community. And Emily Griffith and some of the other programs that we provide are meant to allow people to build bridges um, through the refugee community and also into the American community. So, Ganga, what was the hardest part of moving here? Of course, arriving is is probably very scary when you land, but what was one of the hardest parts of living here? Um, From my own perspective, uh, 
I don't see it as hard as it used to be for myself back mm. in my country. But the hardest part for people who do not have language capacity is language itself. And cultural barrier to some extent makes them difficult for living ahead. But slowly with integration every day, it is becoming more and more easy for each and every individual refugee being resettled in the state of Colorado. So is it just you that are here or, or, or are you a family member? I as well? do have whole of my family members here. So did your parents have similar uh, trouble when, with the language when they arrived here? Uh, it was a little uh, easier for them because I was already here and they joined me a few months later. So I was already equipped with the language. Plus, I knew all around the city. I was uh, OK with uh, getting in touch with uh, friends from America to help them better live their life once they are here. So it was not as difficult as uh, with people who did not have anyone else here before they arrived. Kit, is that something that you see there? Are there other challenges that refugees encounter these first few months that are similar to, to Gunga? Sure. So most of uh, refugee resettlement is actually family ties. So most most people are coming to join their families. Um, for those coming on their own, they do have you know additional barriers. I think a lot of times it's just learning how to navigate our systems. We have mm-hmm. very complicated transportation, schooling, health, and other type of systems that many people who are born here have challenges interacting with. And so I think that that can seem very overwhelming to folks. Um, that's why one of the things that our study found was what was one of the most important things was an aspect of social bridging. So meeting people outside of your community. And that speaks really highly of all the volunteers from the American community that help refugees learn these systems and interact with them on a daily basis to help overcome some of those barriers. And Kit, your study focused on refugees arriving from Mm -hmm. Bhutan, Burma, Somalia, and Iraq uh, between 2011 and 2012. Why focus on just these groups? I'm assuming there are other refugees arriving from other parts of the world. Those were the largest groups arriving at that time. So we knew it was going to be a five-year longitudinal study. So we wanted to get the largest cohort so that we could travel with them through their integration journey. And Ganga, what helped you get more involved in your community? What was it? What what made you step out of your community to, to see some people that have lived here all their life? Um, the most primary thing that I want to bring up here is uh, the problem that our community people were facing with city orientation, transportation, languages, and everything else uh-huh. like that. So basically, I myself, along with my brother and other community leaders, they stepped out from their home apartments, getting in touch with uh, different agencies here in the state of Colorado, across Metro Denver. And we were lucky to have people like Keith join us to create some uh, community-based organizations that made us really easy for people to move them up and get them developed. Kit, when you talk about refugees that maybe didn't integrate so well, a few groups stood out, stay-at-home mothers, women over 55 without work, and men older than 55, whether they had a job or not. What was challenging about those groups? So the refugee resettlement program is, is mainly set up around early employment. And so for these groups that may not be seeking employment because maybe you're a single mom with five kids and we all know how expensive daycare is, or maybe um, you're elderly and you're past the age in which you feel like you should be able to work, or maybe that's just beyond your physical abilities at this time, those people had a harder time getting out and into their communities. So we did find that those those, those folks had greater challenges in integrating. Um, that being said, the study did show that these two groups uh, added value to the community at large. So elderly parents were oftentimes caregivers 
caregivers for small children's, mm-hmm. which enabled the parents to get out and work. And the single mothers were oftentimes babysitting neighbors' kids that at the same time were going out there and working um, in our community. So even though they were having challenges integrating, they still had value when we look at the refugee community as a whole. So how long does the Refugee Resettlement Program uh, work with refugees after they arrive? The the Refugee Resettlement Program is very front-loaded. Um, officially, with our funding, we can work with refugees for five years. But that being said, like a lot of public systems, human services systems, we don't have the resources to do what we would like to be able to do. So a lot of the services become very front-loaded within the first year. And Ganga, do you feel that, that more needs to be involved? Do you feel that, that there needs to be more support uh, for a longer periods of time? Uh, I think at this point, when I look back at myself, that five-year time frame for helping refugees is well enough for myself, but there may be some other people who may need help beyond five years. And we have uh, already seen those people are being helped after five years as well because we do not like completely restrict our help uh, for up to five years. If they do need further help after that, we are here and refugee resettlement agencies are there and people are out there from American societies to help them at any time. Thank you both so much for for joining us today. Thank Thank you. you for having us. Kit Tainter is state refugee coordinator and Ganga Upreti is a Bhutanese refugee who moved to Denver in 2009. For a link to that RISE study of refugees, visit CPRnews.org. And earlier, we heard about Emily Griffith Technical College, which turns 100 this month. I'm Ryan Warner. That's Colorado Matters for today from Colorado Public Radio. Thanks for being with us.